Welcome to Sloppy Spoilers with your host, DT2. What's up, y'all? It's time for another episode of Sloppy Spoilers. We've definitely missed you. Glad to be back together. Uh, this has been a uh, trying time and a crazy year, but we're going to overcome. So tonight, we are actually going to review Dune, the latest iteration of Dune. There's so much history behind the book series and the movie series, and there's so much that's feeding into this film. So we can't wait to talk about it, but I want you to check out a little bit of this trailer first. There's something happening to me. There's something awakening in my mind. I can't control it. What did you see? There's a crusade coming. Do you often dream things that happen just as you dream them? Yes. The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box and you die. What's in the box? Pain. You inherit too much power. You have proven you can rule yourself. Now you must learn to rule others. Something none of your ancestors learned. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> we're going to bring in our co-hosts, and we're going to dive right in. So let's say welcome to David Nemesis Howard. What's up, Nims? So good to see you. Hey, what's going on, everybody? And uh, glad to be back. So excited to talk about this movie. Looking forward to it. Steve, Shade Wing Sellers, come on in. The sleeper has awakened. Um, we're looking forward to discussing this movie. Um, I think that it's really um, done some really incredible things, but also some other things uh, that we need to kind of talk about as well. So I'm looking forward to it. Come on in, Jeff, Dr. Faye Bracey. Oh, uh, sorry. Just a little spice melange there. It's all good. <laughs> Ooh, the spice, the spice. Hmm. Now, I couldn't before. I'm going to tell you my initial reaction to this film, and then we're going to pose some counter questions. Uh, first of all, uh, this is what Game of Thrones should have been. This is what Chronicles of Riddick should have been. Uh, this is what uh, the later Star Wars stuff should have been. And so it 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 dipped over into such a good blend of science and magic and faith and politics. And they're all front and center and they're all interwoven into the story. My counter question for myself, however, was, was I excited about the film because there has just been so many poor quality films before it. And I'm just so happy to see something that's even a little bit good. Is my reaction objective? Is the movie objectively good? So we're going to dive into that. Uh, before we get into those tougher questions, I'm going to have Steve give our audience a recap of what the Dune story world is about. If you've never read the books or seen the uh, any of the films, seen the 1980s film. Go ahead, Steve. 
I think Game of Thrones um, is a good way to kind of describe it because it is in many ways Game of Thrones in space, um, in, particularly in the feuding houses aspect. Um, you know, with the Game of Thrones, you generally have the Starks versus the Lannisters. Uh, in the case of Dune, it is House Atreides versus House Harkonnen. And the dynamic is very much the same. They're feuding adversaries that go back thousands of years, probably so long that they don't even remember why they even have a feud to begin with. So this is all involved in that. And also a lot of it is both sides struggling for ultimate power over their respective kingdom. Or in the case of Dune, it's an interstellar empire that is ruled by a Padishah emperor, which is um, Carino, uh, Shaddam Carino IV is, is his name. And um, we don't see him in this version of the movie. You do see it in the Lynch version. Um, he's the guy played by Mel Ferrer. Um, and, um, and, or yeah, Mel Ferrer, I believe it is. So, um, but he don't see him as much as here. Mostly here, it's more centered on the two uh, feuding houses and they're fighting over this planet called Arrakis. Um, you'll see like a ref references to Arrakis, Dune, Desert Planet. Um, a lot. That that's a, that's almost kind of a medic at this point. But um, the the planet itself, for the most part, doesn't seem to be that interesting. Except it has the one thing in the universe that everybody needs, and that is the spice melange. The spice melange um, allows for interstellar travel. Um, it allows for the enhancement of, um, shall we say, sensitivity um, for basically like superpowers, essentially mental powers. Um, because there is an entire faction as well of a sisterhood that uses mental powers and they are trying to genetically engineer or breed um, basically the Messiah, the Quizox, the Quizox Hagarach, basically. Um, the, basically the chosen one. And in this case, that is Paul Atreides, who is the, uh, the son of Tau's Atreides. And basically it's his story. His story is about how he goes from being the son of a duke um, not knowing a whole lot about anything, never having been on this planet, to having to survive on his own um, and basically climb to power um, after the Harkonnens uh, do a sneak attack and then having essentially to reclaim his, his power and then from there to basically take over the empire and unite all these warring factions and do what he's sent, been sent there to do. So that, that's the story of this movie. All right, we're going to talk about the film as a construct, and we're going to talk about the story inside the film. And we're going to start with the story. Uh, I will say, uh, if I had never experienced any type of Dune content, what jumped out at me the most story-wise was almost the seamless blend of science and magic and faith. Uh, and all that was built on a political frame because basically House Atreides is sent there to be fall guys or fall house. They're sent there to die, but it's a, it's a, it's an image move. It's a PR move to make it seem like they're getting rewarded or exalted and uh, Harkon is getting kicked out, but they're actually being set up. And uh, so the politics are an inextricable part of the storyline. And this film did what Star Wars and New Hope and Empire Strikes Back did in two films. This film does it in one. Star Wars A New Hope was about an intergalactic conflict. Empire Strikes Back made it be about the Skywalkers, and we never come away from that. This film did all of that in one film. And part of me wishes that we could pull the camera back. Same feeling I had for Chronicles of Riddick. 
because we're focused on House of Trades and we're focused on Paul and we're supposed to be. But there has to be so much more going on. And if you if you're familiar with the book material, you know that and familiar with what's coming after this. But it would be really, really tight to pull the camera back and see how other factions, other houses, other planets are affected by everything that's going on. But of course, that's a limitation of the two hour film. So it's not a strike against the movie as far as I'm concerned. It's just an observation I would have liked to have seen because I can't get enough of the necromongers. They're like the Borg to me, wherever they came from, wherever they go, I want to see that film. Mm. And so here it would be more maybe uh, the origin of the worms or there's a whole bunch of stuff, but we'll get into that. So what I'm going to throw out to my co-host is what are your feelings? And this is kind of a dual question on the blatant politics of the movie. In today's climate, we, we almost can't isolate it from certain groups of people that it could represent. So when you see the politics that are going on in the movie, how does that strike you both in the film and in its comparison to some of the things that are going on in the real world? Start with Bracey. Interesting that you said that because uh, even though Villanova appears to be very much a fan of the Herbert series, uh, I couldn't help but pick up on things that felt like they were very much curated towards things going on these days. Uh, you know, the first words you hear from Chani is she starts mentioning oppressors, which is not wrong. The Harkonnens are incredibly oppressive as a people. But, you know, she's talking about like uh, the interesting thing about Dune is culturally it spans so much. And uh, Herbert wrote that as sort of a, a response to things going on at the time. Uh, OPEC, uh, you know, oil crises in America and the power plate. Uh, between the Middle East and America at the time, uh, and it, it fed into a lot of that. And so here they've they've expanded it to fit a bunch of things. Uh, while you don't really see, uh, I mean, you maybe you can if you want to, like say, oh, you know, we're we're over here basically stealing the oil, if you will, because the spice is what drives the economy. It drives the transportation. It's the, the spice is the wonder drug. It gives you health benefits. It it and advances the the abilities to remind so many things uh, it allows people to live for over 200 years uh, if they've got the right quantities of it so it is like really the magic oil MacGuffin kind of stand-in so there's that aspect to it and i couldn't help but think that uh, while the fremen are clearly based off of uh desert people you know bedouins and things like that there's also that kind of Native American aspect to it. It was like, you know, people mm. coming in and encroaching and taking your natural resources and things like that. So there is political ideology in there and even things that get away from what Herbert was trying to do in his novels. Uh, there's several scenes dealing with the Bene Gesserit and what it means to be the Kwisatz Haderach. And he very definitively, uh, this is supposed to be a male born now you don't get into it in the movies because they get away from some of this interestingly but the uh the quizzes hot rock is born a generation too early because of jessica's love for her husband and i noticed what they did in the film here is they kind of downplay the fact that you know the quizzes hot rock is supposed to be a man because when the Bene Gesserit are looking to expand their minds there is a place that they say is particularly uncomfortable for women to try and see with their prescient visions. 
but for some reason, um, and I forget exactly why, but the something in the male psyche allows him to go a little bit further and see a little bit more. And, uh, you know, the Helen, uh, Helen Gaius Moyam makes the, makes the comments like, Oh, you know, all that potential wasted on a male. So they, they kind of veer away from that. So again, that feels a little political in terms of what goes on today is like with, you know, the rah, rah, girl power, everything sort of thing. And, uh, it was like, it's, it was noticeable, but Villanova is so skillful in his handling of, uh, what in the hands of a lesser director. And uh, I, I don't remember if he had a hand in writing the film or not, but in the hands of somebody lesser, Oh, he did. Okay. Excellent. Uh, that could have been something that kind of stuck in my craw a bit, but I'm, he's so good. I was willing to go along with him in this journey and explore ideas that, uh, that, you know, Herbert wouldn't have even imagined back then. I don't think, you know, the, the world has changed so greatly in the years since he wrote his novels. Uh, so despite the fact that there are modern implications, modern ideologies, modern politics put in there, and you can see that and you can appreciate it for what they are in the context of the film. It didn't rob me of my enjoyment of the film. So hats off to him for that. Okay. Two quick things uh, before I throw it out to Steve. Number one, it was Paul's line to his mother about how you've turned me into this freak. That was the anchoring line for me because it was in a, a history and a, a, a group and a tradition that was run by women, that was understood by women, that was mastered by women. And mm-hmm. here I am, and I, you're basically trying to make me be the one in this thing, trying to make me fulfill a prophecy. And I don't have any control of my life. Mm-hmm. But I feel the resentment of all the other women around me just for existing. And I there's that, that, was, that was very there, real and very human. There's also that teenage angst thing. Uh, you know, they, they pepper it very faintly with... Uh, some bits of language that we have in our modern parlance. And it's been a very common term uh, for the last several years for teenagers who feel disaffected to consider themselves freaks or to consider others freaks. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was very telling that they put that line in there, that he would say it like that. You've turned me into a freak and Mm -hmm. that younger people who are experiencing doom for the first time can latch onto that and understand it. We all feel like when we're teenagers that, you know, we're growing into ourselves and we want to be, adults in control of our own lives we're starting to step away from our parents and here's a kid who's suddenly realizing none of that's going to happen for me none of that's going to happen i have no life i have no control over my destiny second thing i want to say that i'm gonna throw to steve is just as an aside uh i want the audience to understand that the function of the spice here is what the alien queen jelly is in the xenomorph alien series and that's why I'm ashamed. Uh-uh. It's a shame it never got into the screen because what mm. Wayland County was ultimately doing was not just uh, using aliens as bioweapons. The alien queen's jelly had those kinds of properties yeah. healing of cancers, mending of bones, extension of life, enhancing of natural senses. That's another reason they wanted that species so badly. And uh, that's a whole sore world in itself. And so then watching this, I'm like, Okay, this is what England should have been too, but I'm digressing. Okay, I'm going to throw it to Steve. Talk about the politics inside the film and its correlation to our contemporary world from your perspective. 
I would say that Herbert created, I think, one of the most timeless concepts um, in modern science fiction. Um, and I think Villeneuve has taken complete advantage of this. Uh, the reason I say this is because what is, what is basically the idea? The idea is that an imperialistic power is trying to take over this area so they can exploit the natural resources of the area. You know, you could apply that to so many different wars, so many different conflicts, uh, so many different uh, geopolitical situations. Um, we see it now if you look at it out the window today. Um, so all of this can be applied today, but is it necessarily 100% a thing of today? No, this has been around forever and it's a pattern that recurs and Herbert saw this. And, mm -hmm. and I think that the genius of it is that Villeneuve caught, uh, saw this um, and he was able to make it seem like a movie of today without sacrificing what is timeless about what Herbert wrote. And I think that balance is very fine. Uh, there is a very delicate uh, touch that Villeneuve puts into this, not to make it too political of 2021. It's not a current year movie. It is a movie that could be relevant years from now. Um, and yet, it feels like a movie of today. It has a lot of those modern dialogue ticks. Uh, you get, you know, lines like, I'm a freak. You know, you get all of these other things. Um, but at the same time, you also see um, other elements. I mean, you get to see the Harkonnens and the uh, Atreides and their power plays. And, you know, they're fighting over this planet. Um, and you kind of see, you know, Game of Thrones style maneuverings, you know, things that, you know, we would expect from a show like that, of a modern show which has these deep political maneuverings. So, you know, we had this, we had this in a novel that is decades old. Um, and yet um, I think Villeneuve took um, most of the right things out of that and made it feel like it makes sense. And when um, Leto talks to his son and says, look, uh, we're in danger. Oh, I'm in danger from the Fremen in the desert. No, you're facing political danger because I can see that the Harkonnens are going to try to pull something. You know, this uh, there's there's more than what we've been told, and and the fact that they're they're really putting more of the emphasis on the politics than I think the '84 film did, um, mm -hmm. I think is really really well done. And yet, it's not a political movie in the way that you see now, where it hammers its messages at you. Yes. Um, you 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 know, a lot of it is Paul's story as he grows into the role of a leader. How do you become a leader? What kind of trials do you have to face to become a leader? And, you know, the idea of, of, you know, having to rule yourself first before you can rule other people. I mean, that's really great. I mean, there are a lot of people out there that are leaders that can't do that now. Um, so, so there is a journey going on and it never sacrifices any of that, you know, because of all the political messages that are there. They're there if you want to read them. There are a million different ways you can interpret the story. And I think that that's right. Um, but at the same time, I feel like there is a, that it, it really is about Paul and his journey um, rather than the politics, you know, exactly. It is not making one-to-one -one direct comparison. And I think Villeneuve was right um, to put a light touch on this. Um, there is an artistic flair to it. And I think this is what separates it from a lot of movies that are coming out today uh, that would be, you know, very much bludgeoned into the dirt. That's correct. It's not heavy-handed. Not heavy-handed. You could follow it, but it's not preaching to you per se. Very good, Nemesis. Yeah. What do you think about the political themes in the film, and how that might be reflected in a real-world context today? Um, well, I'm going to start off uh, with a kind of a side point, which was you were talking about the Benny Gesserit and uh, the sexual politics in this, 
And I mm-hmm. think that's such an interesting thing. I think it's a brave concept that Herbert did, even in the 50s when he wrote this book, because he's really turning uh, sexual politics, sexual um, domination of institutions or something on its head and showing that no matter which sex is dominant inside a hierarchy, power breeds power. And, mm. you know, absolute power breeds absolute corruption, you know, and, and absolute control. And this is a theme that's been played on a lot. Um, the best example I could think of in most recent years is from a video game, uh, the Dragon Age series. Uh, the address the Enchantry is all female dominated and males want to be involved in religion and they're forbidden from being involved in religion. So all the political power, the religious political power is held by females. And I think that's just such a a bold and interesting choice. And I think it's an interesting message, especially for today, because a lot of times we take this, you know, too many people take this tack that it's the patriarchy or it's the matriarchy or it's this or it's that. Well, what it is, is it's just humanity. People in power have a tendency to want to stay in power and increase their power. You know, and and I think that's kind of what you're seeing here. And I think it's a very interesting uh, message that you could take from this movie. Um, As far as political stuff for today, the thing that most stands out for me is that, you know, if I wanted to teach a college level course on the history of the Middle East from 1910 to 1980, I could have people read the first three Dune books Mm. and parallel it to what happened then. Um, There's a famous line from Lawrence of Arabia And I think Lawrence is really kind of a, you know, Paul can almost be a kind of a stand in for Lawrence in real life um, where Lawrence says there's nothing that there's nothing in the desert. No man needs nothing. Well, that was kind of the the thoughts pre World War One about the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. And then Lawrence Arabia, this messianic figure almost to the Arab Bedouin tribes, unites them and they become a fanatical force kicking out the oppressors, the Germans in the Ottoman Empire, and then the English try and control them, the Atreides, and they lose control of the whole thing. And then what you find out is that there is more than just the desert in the desert. There's also oil, which is one of the most important commodities in our world. And then it becomes the center of our universe. And then you have a people who were not prepared to be thrust into it, who are suddenly given a lot of power and then they emerge onto the world scene. And then you have all of the turmoil, political turmoil and everything that happens in our world. And also in, you know, eventually in the Dune world where uh, the Fremen take their uh, jihad, you know, for lack of a better term, outside of Arrakis to the rest of the universe, you know? And I think that, I think it, I would be being naive if, Herbert didn't look at the history of the Western powers and the Middle East from, you know, the early 1900s through the time when he finished this book and incorporate that into the, the into the timelines of his story. I think the parallels are, are really exact. Uh, I agree that the power structure and the power infighting and the need for dominance is just a human thing. And it doesn't matter about gender or age or ethnicity or place in the universe. That's just kind of how power works on anything humanoid with a heart. I also agree again with Steve's point that the balance is there. And speaking of balance, one of the things that jumps out to me, uh, and I said it in the opening, the most about this film is the smooth interweaving 
of magic, science, and faith. Very rarely do you get a film that can hit on all three of those topics and make it believable to a point. Because the one point that is the counterbalance to what I'm saying, and I'll love to hear what you guys have to say, is that I was not always sure of the levels of technology. I was not always sure as to how far the science could go. So I didn't know if I bought certain scenes or not based on, you know what I'm saying? Based on your personal shield, based on Paul's spider sense. Does everybody have spider sense based on? um, I I have so much to say about that. Okay, I'll go to you next. Based on Duncan's sacrifice, based on, uh, and this is, you know, uh, we talk about this on Twitter all day, every day. We understand that certain powers if applied in anything of a realistic setting are, are just, you know, they're, they're the tipping point. They're the game changers. Super speed is one and telepathy is another. So if you can get in somebody's head or if you can control other people, or if you can just scream so loud mentally and people are disoriented and they can't fight, you win. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at, you know, the telepathy being used and, and the mind, control and you know is it like Jean Grey's telepathy is it like Jean Jones telepathy uh the level of connectedness uh, can you project it like Professor X because Professor X is always holding back but you see in the X-Men films you see him freezing entire groups of people you see him freezing a mall full of people to get his kids out of there so I'm looking at that and I'm looking at you know you know the sacrifice suicide play uh, and then I'm looking at the personal shields. You've got to define what can those shields take, what can penetrate them, uh, you know, what doesn't. And again, the spider sense, the awareness, is that spice-based? Is that the one-based? Is that, can everybody do that? And to what extent? So that was something that, it didn't push me out of the film, but it was something that I had questions about as I'm watching, is what is the extent of the science and the magic in this film? Now, when it comes to the faith part, I understood the messianic concept very well because it's not a new idea and we've seen it over and over and over again. You know, one born, one chosen, one prepared or whatever that's going to lead the people out of oppression. And that is as much of a Moses theme as it is a Christ theme. Uh, uh, Less of sacrificing your life in a public way for the sake of others and more of leading people out of the bondage that they've gotten used to or the political peril that they've fallen into. So that part isn't new. So I can follow that really, really well. But it's the other two that just had me, you know, scratching my head. And the only thing about the Messiah, this is a movie rule. I'm going to tweet this in a minute. First of all, the Messiah character is always prophetic. I can go with that. But you're always prophetic by somebody in their teens and their 20s, some cutie, some hottie that you're going to fall in love with. That just amazes me. Because <laughs> Leo sees Trinity and Paul sees then die and just, you know. So when you go in your little trance and everything and you're trying to save the world, there's a cutie in your future. That just always amazes me how consistent that is. You don't see nobody old and overweight or less attractive. You don't see nobody <laughs> get the hot babe every time. Like to be fair, he is a teenage boy. What else would he want to see? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, let's face that, it. That just look, amazes me. That if, you look at our mythologies, if you look at our mythologies, we seem to be geared for that because that sort of thing keeps popping up through the ages. It's almost yeah, like but, men like women. You keep saying that you can't save the world until you fall in love. Now, wait now. 
I beg to differ with that, but we'll get into that a little bit more. Okay, Nemesis, faith, science, and magic. Well, I'm, I'm going to hit on a couple of the science things. And this is one of the things that I love about this series. Um, it's one of the shortcomings of, of any movie because they can't go as much into the, the backstory. I've told my, my wife oftentimes, if I could ever create a, a world, a lived-in science fiction world, half as good as Frank Herbert, I could die a happy man. Um, specifically on your shields. This is one of the most fat. There's two things, two things I want to talk about shields and mintats. Uh, the shields are, uh, kinetic shields. So basically what it was is there was so much warfare in the past, uh, that in order to protect from projectile weapons, bullets and the like, they came up with personal shields and it, that's why they fight with knives. It seems ridiculous, but it protects from high speed kinetic weapons. And it's almost, and it's funny because Herbert wrote this right about the time that Kevlar was coming out, which acts mm -hmm. in a similar way. And then we later, later years, we would discover non-Newtonian liquids, which when you push hard, fast on them, they become a solid. But if you push slow, you can put your hand through them. So that's basically what these shields are. And those non-Newtonian liquids are now being incorporated into modern ballistic armor. So what they had to come up with is these, Thing, these ways, these projectiles that either hit the, the shield and then slowly penetrated them. So you see that even with the big bombs they drop later on, the the, the shield bursters, mm -hmm. or you know the dart that kill that poisoned Duke Leto Atreides. You notice that it hits him, and then it just starts screwing through the you know going slowly through the shield. So it's just such a fascinating, cool concept, and it's just a little thing. And they can't take the time to explain, you know, the movie time to explain why. They did this, you know, the history behind it. But when you start to, when you know about it, it's just a fascinating, cool, um, you know, off the wall type thing that makes perfect sense for this world. The other one is Mintats. And I think Mintats are even cooler than the Shields. And Mintats, you know, the 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 one gentleman who, when they would ask for numbers, his eyes would roll back and you see the white of his eyes. The movie. A lot. Yeah, David Villeneuve. Uh, Villeneuve did that, and I think that was a cool uh, effect for the Mintap. But basically what it was is this is thousands of years, and humanity has scattered from Earth. But at some point in the past, there was an AI war, almost like Terminator, and AIs mm -hmm. went rogue. Mm -hmm. And so all thinking computers have been outlawed. You know, they're they deliberately dumbed themselves down and trained human beings to take the places of technology and and so for uh computation and stuff like that they've come up with mnemonic techniques to train the human brain to be as fast as a computer to do statistics collation and whole data and everything and these people are trained in as mintats that's what they're called and there's all sorts of different training there's the you'll later find out about the talaxu and and you know all sorts of different human specialization races but basically while they still have technology to a certain extent, they don't rely on it. They instead have decided to elevate the human mind and the human condition and try and transcend technology and only use technology where it's physically impossible for them to do what it is that they need to do. And that's just another really, really cool concept. I think it's just so fascinating that Herbert came up with this. And it's one of the things that makes me love Dune so much. And there's little things like that throughout all of the books and especially this first book, you just get exposed to all these little uh, bits of information. And unfortunately for a movie, 
you don't have the time to go in there and explain all these little things to give you a little bit of backstory about the AI war or about, you know, kinetic, you know, bullets and shields and things like that. So you kind of get it. And so like, if I take my, I mean, I took my son to see this movie, like he's kind of getting the, I'm constantly giving him the elbow and be like, yeah, yeah, that's really cool. It's because of this and this. And I'm sure he's like, yeah, dad, that's great. I'll, I'll read the book, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's really cool. And, and that's one of the things I really love that they got that in there. Yeah, but to me, uh, I'm not disagreeing with you, by the way, but to me, it begs Pressman's argument from TNG about the phase cloak. Because every time someone tries to use or diminish technology or get away from any type of technological advances in order to preserve their humanity and be enlightened, they keep forgetting that there are people in the universe that ain't going to buy into that. And they're going to come and they're going to stomp you as soon as they can, as fast as they can. And so that was uh, when the betrayal happens here. I'm just shaking my head like, what did you think was going to happen? I, I just think it's one of the things I think is so fascinating, though, is that you look at the I think this is a, a sci fi series. I think Steve said it, that it really was foundational for so much that came after it. You know, you look mm-hmm. at different uh, games, books, TV shows, movies, and all of them borrow different concepts. Um, you know, I, I hate to keep going back to video games, but the Mass Effect video game takes directly from the AI war here where AI is illegal. And so, you know, they have trained other, they've found other ways to work around it because they had a bad experience with AI. And I think that's a, a cool thing to talk about, you know, is like, what are the dangers of AI, you know? And and all of us who are our age, we grew up with Terminator. So, you know, we're all sitting there the watching, yeah, yeah, we're watching Boston Dynamics, you know, <laughs> trot out the latest robot and going, yeah, it's, it's time to start going to the hills and finding little Hamilton because, uh, you know, <laughs> the robot revolution is coming any day now. So. Well, Bautista just was a Klingon as far as I was concerned. So that wasn't a big <laughs> leap to me. But anyway, Steve, what do you think? Faith, science, and magic in the film. Yeah, I, I will add one thing to what Nem just said um, as far as Doom being an influence. Um, I think it was, thinking about it, a direct influence on the Wheel of Time series. Uh, if anybody's familiar with the upcoming Amazon thing, uh, it draws directly in these various ways. You have a sisterhood uh, of magic users, and they frown on men being able to use this. And, of course, the messiah that has the magic power to save all the world is a man. You know, things, things, things of that nature. And, and you can, so you can definitely tell that a lot of various different uh, series have been doing that. Um, as far as the, the magic science of faith thing, yeah, I have to say I like the balance between all of these things. Um, it is very, very well done in all the world-building aspects. Um, you have the Bene Gesserit, who, and I think in a way, are both mystic and faith-based. Um, and I think that that really comes uh, through as well. And and I, I, I kind of echo the idea of, yeah, the idea is to sort of eliminate the, the dependency on technology, which is a real problem. I mean, and, and the dependency on the spice as well. Uh, so that's two dependence. There are two dependencies that, that have led to major conflicts. Uh, you have the... Uh, the AI were leading to the AI war. And then you also have um, the, the wars constantly on Arrakis over the spice. Um, so the idea of the Kwisatz Haderach, um, you know, being able to transcend time and space, you know, to, to breed a race of people, you know, that can do all the uh, teleportations without needing all of the mental enhancement that the spice brings, you know, that's, um, that's a major, major importance. But at the same time is what the Bene Gesserit are doing for the greater good, 
um, going to end up being something that will bite them uh, in the end? Very possible. I mean, it is possible that with the creation of, of, a, of a messianic being that they could, in, especially in future generations, uh, end up creating their own conqueror. That's definitely a possibility. And so um, I love that, that whole fascination that you can really think through all of these elements of science and faith and, and all how they come together and, you know, sort of wonder, are they creating more problems than they're solving or the other way around? But at the same time, you can see how the society would have formed uh, just because of all of these exceptions that they put in um, in the world building that allows for all these things. So that's really, really fascinating. The other aspect that I really think is uh, worth noting is how much biology uh, plays its way in the technology. So you have the ornithopters, who I have to say, that it looks so good in this movie. I love <laughs> the look of the ornithopters, much more than the Lynch movie. Um, but you can kind of see, they all look like dragonflies. I just love you know, the idea that so much of the technology looks like living creatures. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the little dart, you know, that, that's flying around as a small bug. You know, the sandworms, you know, all, all of these things, you know, definitely the ecology was thought out. But not just the ecology, but how the ecology affects the technology, you know, how they design, you know, the tech based on the creatures that exist in this world and the creatures that, you know, are exist on Earth. You know, all of these are very logical um, extrapolations of that. And um, they're working their way towards nature because they're trying to get away from technology. So they're using nature more as um, a blueprint, um, you know, to make all of these things work. I, I think that that's really, really fascinating. Um, I would have liked to see more of that. But I, I think a lot of it is, is that Herbert's world is so vast and so complex and includes so many different things that I think the challenge for any director doing this franchise and why it had to be two movies um, is basically, what do you leave out? Um, and there's just so much in there that you can't um, really process it all. So you have to think about what you're going to focus on uh, to make the story that you're telling work. And I think that that's what, uh, Denis, Denis Villeneuve did a really, really good job on um, is knowing what to cut and what to leave in. Um, there are some points where I think he made mistakes in that, but we'll talk about that uh, where it's more relevant. But in terms of the world building itself, I think he took the right bits. I think um, and, and implied what he needed to imply and explained what he needed to explain for the most part. Uh, I think that comes through very, very well. I, I would just add one thing, you know, I think you brought up a good point about, you know, using nature as a blueprint. That's really a theme, especially with the Fremen. They, you know, they are desert power, but all of their technology is based on coexistence with the desert. And I think that's another, you know, maybe I'm going to let a little bit of my tree hugger side out here, but I think that's an important, another important political theme in the movie is that, you know, he's, he's looking at human beings who, who live with nature and and live as part of nature and then later on the atreides and the fremen try to change arrakis and they try mm -hmm. and change and the harkonnens yeah nature yeah and and change the planet and nothing good happens from it i'll just say that you know i don't want to ruin anything for anybody else but i will say that that trying to change you know mess with messing with mother nature and messing with the the, the actual essence of what you know, wherever the environment is, does it turn out well? And I think that's an important message in the book and in the movie and for, you know, as far as politics for us in general as well. If we can learn to live with nature instead of battling it and, and shaping the world to our image, we, we'd probably be much better off. 
Sorry, I'll okay. get off my soapbox now. So. Okay, all right. Well, I have to comment to that. And two things jumped to mind while Steve was talking. The first thing I have to say to what you just said, Nims, is that that would be nice, but for that to happen, people would have to tell the truth. And that's why it, it doesn't really happen because it requires truth. If we're going the natural route, if we're going to go move more towards that, um, Native American people or indigenous people kind of have that as a basis for the culture. Uh, many, many, many Far Eastern people see life that way. They go with the flow of the earth and the time and the tide and the seasons. But if you're going to deal with a Western Greek-based uh, political or capitalistic structure, uh, you know, you can't go with truth. That's always the thing, because you have to tell the truth if you want to get with nature. So that's to Nemesis. To what Steve said, two things came to mind. The first thing came to mind is that extremists of any faction, whether it be faith or politics, quite often don't see the fatal flaw in their arguments. So if, if you are going to create, you know, one person to rule them all or one anything. It's like in the scriptures when they moved from a theocracy being directly underneath God, the Hebrews did, to a monarchy. If you want to move to a monarchy, that means all the faults and the flaws of the king are going to be on the throne. And every decision he makes, no matter what it is, is going to affect everybody. And we saw that in Saul, David, and Solomon's life. And then the kingdom got split. There's that. But also what I heard when Steve was talking was two words. Evil Superman. And I, I said, was thinking of Homelander. Right. <laughs> I will be honest. Like Homelander is what you're you're kind of afraid of in the worst case scenario. Yes, yes. And I'm like, that's got to be inevitable. Every time you create or fashion, every time you go that way, there's no way you don't end up with a Homelander or Ultraman or Injustice Lord Superman scenario at some point. And so I'm always wondering. That's why I like Batman because Batman's got a fail safe. Batman's already three generations ahead. He's like, okay, this person go crap out, so we need some kryptonite. Okay, Bracy, faith, science, and magic in the film. All right, uh, let me dig into this, and this is going to be a pretty deep dive here. Uh, first thing I've got to bring up is this is where the film fails for me. Uh, and it fails in this manner. It takes for granted that you know something about Dune. Now, like Steve said, there's lots of inferences. They uh Villeneuve tries to give you enough inference to like oh you can kind of put things together but I couldn't help but as as watching it and this has been a complaint I've heard from people who watched the film that there was a lot they didn't get uh that sometimes the problem with being uh, an uber fan making uh a, you know realizing a project for the rest of us uber fans is you kind of forget about everybody else a little bit so uh, Villeneuve does all this amazing world building, but it's so deep and so layered because of the choices he has to make of what to show and what to say for later. Uh, there are a lot of people who are left lost. And as somebody who is a big, big fan of the Dune series, I kept thinking, like, I know people aren't going to get this. I, I know they're they're just going to have to kind of like mentally skip over this and just move on to the next thing a little bit. And from the internet chatter I've seen, I was right about that, and which is it's too bad because I don't want to compare this to the Lynch film. We agreed not to do that. But I will say that um, in, in very brief that Lynch did manage to put a lot of those elements in so you would understand. Like when we're talking about the technology of the shields, uh, you know, uh, Gurney Halleck, 
you know, like as, as he and Paul are fighting in the 84 film, you see the blade slowly penetrate through the shield. And he goes, like, good, good. The slow blade penetrates the shield. He said it. Whereas like here, you, you don't necessarily get, you, you see Paul slapping his hand kind of fast and like a little bit slower. But then as I'm watching the rest of the film, I'm not really seeing those slow points of contact in the fight choreography. Uh, you see the slow uh, needles uh, trying to penetrate shields or the, or the bombs slowly penetrating through shields. But like, I'm not seeing that in the fight choreography. And that was a little disappointing for me. I wish we could have seen like somebody like puts the blade up against the shield and then like there's a give and then it goes in. Um, so I wish that had happened. And uh, just to give you an explanation on the tech in there, uh, the, the shields uh, are a byproduct of a technology that became very widespread and, they call this the Holtzman effect. It was developed by a guy named Holtzman, whereas they uh, they discovered a field that repelled matter. And you can set it to how many uh, cycles. I think uh, it's like anything over nine centimeters a second gets repelled, which is why like fast striking blows bounce off. But you need enough pass through so that you can still breathe. You know, your oxygen molecules can come in. This is also why they have floating technology. This is also an effect of the Holtzman field. This is also why the uh, the Baron uh, floats around with his technology. He's using Holtzman technology to float. They call them suspensor fields and things like that. And uh, again, I, I wish they could have. These are things that people can kind of buy into. Uh, the shield would have been nice to have a little bit more explanation. Uh, but this is a this is another technology, and it, I hope people will go read the books like I did after watching the '84 film. I just rushed out and got every one of these doggone books I could and just dove right into them. Uh, so I do hope it drives in that sort of interest. Now, uh, I did like the disparate levels of technology, which was really cool because you're like, okay, it takes the spice to allow navigators to plot courses through space so you don't run through stars and things. And uh, you've got uh, this, this hover technology, but what do we do? We have powered flight. And not like uh, not like ionic flight. We've got rocket flight, as we see with missiles and booster rockets. And I love that we have these all these separate levels. Even though we've got this Holtzman effect that does a lot of things, it doesn't do everything. You know, it's 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 not the warp drive equivalent, or like in Star Wars, every other thing floats, and they just never kind of explain why that happens. And even though they don't really explain it here in the movie, I can still see like okay. They've got this stuff that lets you float, but it's got limits. It's not going to pick up this whole ornithopter. You know, it's not going to pick up like maybe uh, like maybe your whole ship, or if it does, it must have so many generators in there that it's not practical for more than just like raising this thing up and like uh, letting people get into flight status. Like when the uh, the big ship comes up out of the water out of Caladan, you know this this isn't what's going to lift this thing into space, or you know it's not going to travel it across the star. So I like seeing that these these different levels of uh, technology, including the human technology. Again, this is where uh, I hate to keep going to Lynch because I said we we're going to do that, but like the little preface in the Lynch film, which explained the AI war uh, led to this incredible advancement in human biological and mental technology where we get the Mentats who sadly weren't mentioned in the film at all. And like, it's a great disservice to uh, Thufur Hawat and uh, Peter DeVries from House Harkonnen. Because Mentats are badass, uh, but the and it's what led to the Ben Jesters being so awesome, you know, and the production of the Quizots High Rock, and this, the fact that we, 
the AR world was actually kind of a really great thing for humans because they stopped depending on machines and learned to be very robust themselves going forward. Uh, this is what led to the Bane program of trying to breed the perfect aspect of humanity that they could. And so the, the mental and physical processes that people could develop, including learning um, quasi-mystical abilities, like you see the voice. The voice isn't actually telepathy. It's a way of pitching and modulating the human voice in such a way that it uh, affects parts of the brain that just, it's, it's almost like a super hypnosis uh, through like infrasound and other things. Like it's just this incredible modulation because what they can do in the Dune series is way more than any of our top level athletes could even imagine these days. They've just, uh, Frank Herbert's obviously very much into evolution. He talks about how like, in a later series, and I'm sure Nim knows from reading the books, uh, Duncan Iho is a character who keeps appearing through all the films because he keeps getting uh, he keeps getting cloned. And at one point, he gets cloned, and he's like, you know, serving the new house of Trades, and he gets mad. And he goes to attack somebody. He gets his butt whooped, and you see how badass Duncan Iho is. It's like, what? How did you do that? It's like, oh, man, you know, I'm a thousand years down the road. You're an old model. It's like, you know, you don't have the proper, like, uh, genetic reflexes and nerves and all that stuff. Like, yeah, we'll have to get you a new body next time. Sorry, buddy. And so there's that sort of thing going on. So it's not it's not like Star Wars mysticism where, like, you know, you're using telekinesis or true telepathy. Uh, the most mystical thing they have is being, um, which is what they really wanted out of the Kwisatz Haderach more than anything, the prescience. The ability to see into the future, because that's the Bene Gesserit's whole deal, is they really want to guide the path of humanity. And so that's why they've been trying so hard to develop this one type of person. Now, the uh, faith-based thing is also super interesting. You see Gurney Halleck is constantly quoting. And what he's quoting, you see him like open up his little Bible. That is, in the books, that's called the Orange Catholic Bible. So a form of Catholicism continues uh into this future 10,000 years away from you know the time that we know now and another part of the Bene Gesserit uh campaign has also been to spread religion for their own purposes when they talk about they have set the stage for Paul on Arrakis and Paul calls his mother out on that which doesn't happen in this book but I really like that scene there's like oh they believe what you've told them believes like you know it's it's for you and he's like no it's not for me it's for your sisterhood and he rightly calls her out on that because they have instilled uh, the, the Bene Gesserit aren't just uh, consorts to powerful households. They have gone out across the, you know, the Imperium and they have seated themselves throughout. And they, because of their ability to manipulate and they're, they're so cunning and so wise and so strong, uh, they have been basically kind of like in the weird way social media like we've been discovering has been doing to people they've been seeding what they want people to know and it's all to further their end so they think they're doing this great benevolent thing but you know if you think about free will and stuff it's also pretty sinister so uh, another genius thing herbert did is he wrote a he wrote a series which didn't really have a good guy and that was part of the objective here he wanted to show like you know he, he wanted to do the opposite of the messiah as a nemesis could tell you uh, from later books, uh, his Messiah is a failed Messiah. As he says, like trying to change certain things goes horribly, horribly wrong. 
and Paul, as he starts to see the future here, as we as we see it here in this film, talking about the uh, he sees a religious war coming, a jihad in his name and his father's name. Although I doubt they'll use jihad uh, in the movies, <laughs> but the, Herbert called it a jihad in the books, and he becomes trapped in the vision because, like, once you know the future, you're kind of stuck with that future. And that's uh, that's part of the horror and tragedy of everything that happens to Paul Atreides. Okay, well, the prophetic is definitely legit, but that is a good segue into what I want to talk about next, which are the characters, mm -hmm. now, the characters themselves. As far as I was concerned, Lady Jessica was Sarah Connor with one <laughs> major difference, and that being... Sarah Connor earns her development, and I don't believe Lady Jessica does, at least not for me. And what I mean by that is very specific. It's like Jake and Training Day. There were two to three points where she was done. She was over. She should have been dead. And she did not get out of it because of her own ingenuity. She did a couple times, but not every time. She got out of it because of main character powers. And so that kind of made me shake my head a little bit. I'm like, okay, well, Paul is in no danger. Is it just me? Does anybody else understand that Paul is in no danger in this entire movie? So, especially when they get into the desert in the end, I was like, okay, whatever. If you stab him through his brain, he's coming back. So, so a lot of the tension was gone for me. When you study Sarah Connor from T1 to T2 and to, from the TV show on the Chronicle, she earned, she earned everything she did. She lived with God. She slept with God so she could learn how to pick a lock so she could learn bombs, so she could learn guns, so she could learn different languages, so she could learn how to be a sniper. She turned herself into an extreme survivalist. She did so many things, but she earned. So every time we see Sarah get herself out of something, especially in T2, it's completely believable because she earned those skills. When Lady Jessica gets cornered more than once, it's, well, main character powers is what got her out. So that threw me off a little bit. Um, with Paul, just to say it plainly, there weren't really a lot of surprises for me, even if I had approached this fresh with no knowledge of the books or the prior film. He didn't really do anything that jumped out at me. There weren't really any surprises. And when he looked into the future, we're going to save mankind with Zendaya. But my favorite character is actually Duncan, uh, Jason Momoa's <laughs> character, yeah. uh, because of his single-heartedness and because of his single-mindedness and because of his loyalty unto death, I just always have a thing for characters like that. You know, if you're going to go out, go out like a man. If you're going to pledge yourself to something, then be faithful to what you pledge yourself to. Uh, also, I really liked the Duke. I wanted to see more of him because he is, he felt to me like the ultimate realization of Ripley in Alien Resurrection. He's wicked. He's evil. There's stuff in him that's that's beyond regular people's evil. And and he was like, if you could turn a scorpion into a person, he'd be the Duke. And it fascinated oh, me. With, for the Baron. You mean Harkonnen? You mean you mean Baron? Baron. I'm sorry. I'm calling yeah, him Baron. Baron, Harkonnen. Baron, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, but yeah. So because he felt like he had a scorpion's tail coiled behind him at all times. Mm -hmm. He was just invisible. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, that fascinated me. So I don't know why I call him the Duke. Yeah, I'm talking about the Baron. But, uh, and so these are characters that, even knowing some things about them, still fascinated me to see them on the screen. 
because of, like I said, uh, kind of maybe their, their moral value set and the amount of safety or danger that they, they propose in a situation. Because we knew if Momoa's in a movie, we have to see him fight and we have to see, see him fight 10 people at once and he's not going to break a sweat. But it's still great to see every time they do that. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, you know, like I said, in terms of, uh, and then uh, Batista's character, uh, I'm trying to say his name right. Uh, the Beast Raban. Raban. Grasso Raban, right. And so, because uh, Batista's always a great time, but he always feels to me like he's winking at the camera a little bit. Because Drax feels the same way to me, like it's a little fourth wall breaking, like y'all see me acting a fool uh, like that. He feels like that to me all the time. But maybe that's just me. So when I'm, you know, and whenever, that's why I keep talking about Zendaya. Whenever you put the it girl in a movie because she's the it girl, I cannot see her as a character. Maybe that's just me, but I can't ever make that leap. Okay, you put her in that movie, you know, stunt casting, guest casting, whatever. Not because she could play the role, but because you wanted to get teenage eyes on the film. It's not that I don't understand the technique. It's just that you're not going to convince me after that point that you're that character unless this it's this incredible transcendent performance that makes me forget that you're a stunt cast. Uh, because watching in the Spider-Man films, I was like, even if I remove Mary Jane Watson from my memory, I don't understand why Peter's attracted to you. All you do is insult him. So, you know, but that's just me. That's just a personal thing. I know everybody don't feel that way. But uh, <coughs> just in terms of how I'm experiencing things as they're going, and then uh, all of the people, if you didn't know they were going to die, all of the people that end up dying, it's kind of telegraphed. From the moment you see them on the screen, you're like, oh, red shirt. Oh, you're going to die. Oh, you're going you're gonna to croak. So I didn't get a lot of surprises there. But like I said, uh, it's not that I'm not interested in seeing your next film because I am. It's not that I don't want to fall, follow Paul's journey because I do. It's just that it seemed to me that there was more juice and more meat and more character development in the characters I've mentioned. And you're not supposed to write a story that's kind of a writing thing. You're not supposed to write a story where you're main protagonist is not the most interesting character. This is the longest Star Wars argument. Who's it about? It's about Anakin. How many more times does George Lucas have to tell people this story is about Anakin? It's not about Luke. It's not about Rey. But people just say, oh, no, that kind of thing. So your most interesting character is supposed to be the one that draws the most attention and makes you want to continue to follow the storyline. And I didn't feel that with Paul at all. But again, that's just me. So I'm going to throw it out to you guys. We're going to talk about characters. Uh, Nims, why don't you start? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't disagree with you. I mean, um, let's start with those first two, uh, Paul and... Um, and his mama. And his mom, um, Lady Jessica. The weird thing about those two characters is that the first half of the Doom book, and which is basically this movie... Um, they're almost minor characters, to be honest with you. I mean, yes, they've got stuff going on with, with them, but really the, the big players are uh, Duke Leto and what he's doing. I mean, and yes, you're, you have the backdrop of what's going on with Paul and then Lady Jessica's in the back and she's her motivations are nebulous and everything to a certain extent. Really, the realization of Paul, the beginning of Paul's story doesn't start till the second half of the book, of this book. 
And does it come to, you know, Paul's story doesn't conclude until book three, really. So it reaches its crescendo. And Lady Jessica's whole arc really doesn't conclude till somewhere in the middle of book two when there's a major revelation on her. Right, this is sloppy spoilers, but I'm not going to spoil that much. There's a bit of revelation about her parentage and why mm-hmm. she's imp- why she is important and what it means and what and how that ties into the Bene Gesserit and a whole bunch of other stuff. And that's why she is so important and why stuff that she does in the back half of this book, when her character really starts to take off, makes sense as well. So I absolutely agree with you. And, and it all has to do with Herbert's writing and pacing. And unfortunately, in this case, I think that the book has tied the hands of the screenwriter to a certain extent, because if they changed it mm-hmm. to, to develop the characters early, mm-hmm. then it would break the story. You would have to change the story too much. And, and diehards would be really upset, really, really upset. And I, I don't think it would be the same story either. And unfortunately, whether you like it or not, this first movie is half of a book. And even after the first book, you're still going to have, some questions, some things are going to get tied up, but you're going to have more questions, you know, and really it's the first three books. And one is kind of a side, you know, children of Dune is kind of, but this book and Dune Messiah are the two, you know, meaty things that you got to get into. So I'll say that. Um, Jason. Yeah. Villeneuve himself said that. Yeah. Jason Momoa. Yeah, I agree. was great. as Duncan Idaho. Uh, My only question was, Okay, you pay. You have to have paid. You know, call Drogo a ton of money to do his bit in this. You know, you better be making the other movies where Duncan Hyduncho comes back. Otherwise, you you put out a bunch of movie, money for nothing. So, you know, um, the rest of the cast, uh, the Baron uh, was wonderful. The guy who played him was absolutely incredible. I can't remember his name. Star yeah, I, I I just remember that he's been in quite a few things that I love him in. I think he's absolutely incredible in this role. Um, he brought such a different feel to the character of Baron Harkonnen than other adaptions on the small screen and the big screen, and yet it was more sinister. I, and I was like, whoa, whoa, this guy is really evil. It just, yeah, it was creepy. Um, I agree with you about Duke Leto. It's another failing, uh, you know, if you want to call it a failing, he is a very interesting character. And when he dies in the book and every movie, I've always been the same. It's like, I, I wish I could have more of this in the sci-fi series. Uh, Hurt, uh, is it Ed, James Hunt Hurt? Ed Hurt? William, William Hurt. Liam Hurt played uh, Liam. Duke. Yeah. Dave played Duke Leto and he did very wonderful with the character. It's always been, you know, a yeah. really good character who dies way too soon. Yeah. Um, Raban, I like what Batista did with it, but it, it 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 was so it's a departure, and I felt it was a little bit too under control at times. You know, um, what was the last one I would look at? Doctor Yui, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the way they played the character. I loved the character who played uh, the Trades Mintat. I thought he did really well. I didn't mind that they gender swapped uh, Liette Kynes. You know, yeah. I thought that she worked just fine the way she was uh zendaya take her leave her you know she is the it girl i I didn't have a real problem with her um i love the guy who played stilgar absolutely loved him and i love that i love that i love that character as a whole Uh, um yeah later on 
uh, Stilgar is going to be a huge part of this book and other books and just really cool. Uh, I like the guy who played Jameis. I like what they did with him. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, overall, I-, I thought that the movie was well cast. I thought the characters were well done. But I think your criticisms are fair. And I think they're criticisms that go all the way back to the source material. And unfortunately, I think uh, I do definitely think that that the movie is kind of hamstrung by the book because uh, to change that much and actually give you an arc would change the story too much. And so it, it, it's such a difficult thing. I think that they had to balance. So, but I hear what you're saying and I agree. Well, I also uh, agree with what you're saying as a counterbalance, as a counterpoint that it is really hamstrung by the source material because uh, that's one of the main complaints of Star Wars. If you know anything about everything behind the scenes, as much as they say they had everything planned out, Luke's sister was in another galaxy and she was not Leia. That was a last minute decision. And then everything they say in their conversation, they contradict with the Phantom Menace and Revenge of the Sith. And people have always complained about stuff like that. So we can't have it both ways. So if we're going to have accurate translation and we're going to stick to the original story of the book, then uh, this is one of the limitations of when you do this kind of adaption, unless they had uh, either made a four hour film, which would not go over well with studios, or if they want to do like Peter Jackson and Lord of the Rings and shoot everything, shoot 10 movies all at the same time. <laughs> And, you know, release them once a year, something like that. So there are ways around it. But, you know, that's, you know, a billion dollars. And so so I get it. So I definitely agree with your pushback, though, because if, if they, with, with a story that's this specific, you can only bend it so much until it's not that story anymore. And if it's not the story anymore, then it's not Dune. And then we got a whole other thing we're going to argue about till we die, because that's what we do. So I, I definitely agree with your pushback on that. And since we're all authors, we know that half the time it's enough if you get half of what you want on the screen. If if it looks like out there, what it looks like to you in here, if you get 50% of that, most of the time we just roll with that. We're like, okay, I'll take it. You know, that's not how I envisioned it, but we'll go with it because we're going to be here 10 more years if I start getting to every nook and cranny of how I see it. So I agree completely with your pushback. Okay, I'm going to throw it to Bracey. Characters. Yeah, I think um, I think the yeah, issue here one, is the villain. Keep going, y'all. Excuse me one sec, but keep going. All right, I think the issue here that Villeneuve had to deal with was um, like DT. You're saying that uh, you hate the fact that the the camera couldn't pull out wide, so you could see the larger world. And as like Nemesis said, uh, the first half of the book is really about Shaddam, uh, you know, the Emperor uh, Leto. Uh, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, uh, Helen Gaius Moyam, the, the Bene Gesserit leader. It, it's really their machinations, and, uh, and and Leto's having to deal with it and that sort of thing. And then later on, uh, Paul gets involved in things as he grows from a boy into a man, and he has to become uh, this leader who's going to become a messiah. So I think uh, the director had to narrow his focus uh Rightfully so. As much as I'd like to see more, I'd like to see the expansion of the world. I'd like to see the expansion of these characters. You know, we can always go back to the uh, the '84 film or the books for that. And you know, it's it's what you're going to do because, like, you know, if you're not making a 10 hour film, you're just not going to get it all in there. So, uh, looking at it, I feel like Paul is the 
not just Paul, but I guess really Paul and Jessica, they're the point of view characters, uh, which is a rare thing. You don't usually get dual point of view characters in a film, but they're the point of view um, for the film. They're, uh, they're how the audience is seeing the film. We're seeing it through Paul's eyes and Jessica's eyes. Uh, to that end, they did some really interesting stuff with Jessica. Now you said like, you don't feel like Jessica has earned her spot. And that's because by the time we get to her in the story, she's already a ninja, you know, she's, <laughs> you know, she's already, you know, been a ninja for like all of her life. So we don't get the progression of training. She's already there. So, uh, when stuff goes down she's just ready to rock and roll. So her role in this film really became that mentor. And I did like the relationship between her and Paul. Um, Paul's really good uh, in the first half of the movie where he's dealing with the, I feel like the younger things, dealing with the trials of becoming a man and having the mantle of leadership being thrust upon him and, and trying to, he has a really great moment with Oscar Isaacs as they're out in the, um, you know, the, the graveyard of the Atreides uh, leadership and uh, dealing with all that. And so that was some really fine stuff I thought. And, uh, you know, because she is teaching him the weirding way in the way of the Benny Gesserit sisterhood, uh, she has a larger role to play in his life uh, in a lot of things than his dad does. Whereas, his, you know, dad's going to teach you how to be the, the patriarch of this, uh, this fiefdom that we've got eventually. And he doesn't really, for me, I can see where you say like, uh, he becomes less interesting later on in the film, especially where he uh, starts having the visions. Because once he has the visions, well, you know, it's like when Kill Bill, when they made the mistake of like, uh, you see uh, the bride's list and she's crossed off all the names except for like Bill. Well, there's nothing to worry about. You know, she's going to beat uh, Verena Green. You know, she's going to beat Orin Ishii. You know, she's going to beat all these other people. She's just down to Bill. So it loses stakes by doing that. You know, like he's had this vision of the future. He's going to be waging this jihad across the galaxy. You're not worried about him anymore. So where he became interesting again for me was the moment when he gets the Duke's signet ring and then he starts taking charge. The mother was the leader in the relationship. And once the realization that the Duke is dead, he tells like, mom, you know, drink this. Okay, we're going here. We're doing this. I'm going to marry the emperor's daughter. I'd say we go to the desert with Stilgar. You know, like, if you'll have me, this is my path. And, you know, she's all about trying to get him off plan. He's like, no, I'm in charge now. I'm the Duke. That's how it's working. And so that's when he became more interesting to me again. He uh, he developed into that leader. Uh, but, yeah, there's the, the stakes are gone because we have these visions of the future. We know that he and his mother are just going to be there for that. I'm getting somebody's echo. I hear my own voice. Uh, next up, let's say uh, Oscar Isaacs is completely amazing as Duke Leto. And he's a character that, again, you want more of. And uh, I can't fault uh, Brian Herbert, Frank Herbert's son, for going back and writing these fill-in novels, which explore that character in greater detail because he's a great character and he definitely deserved more time. Uh, so I'm pretty glad that he did that sort of thing. And uh, Oscar plays him to a T. Actually, I think everybody who's played the Duke has done a wonderful job from mm-hmm. uh, from Hurt to uh, uh, what's it? You're going to now. Yeah, thank you. Hey, hey Jeff, can yeah. I can I throw a quick point on Jessica real quick that I forgot to bring up? 
um, before you get too far away from uh, Jessica, I think one of the other things, reasons why, and you hit on a little bit, because you hit on her being a ninja, it's one of the things that's another failure of translating the book to this, is that they don't only explain how unbelievably awesome Benny Gesserit are. I mean, yeah. when Duke Leto says that she gave him a son, she literally gave him a son. Benny yeah. Gesserit are so in control of their bodies, they could kill the female sperm inside their bodies and produce a male heir. I mean, that is just next level craziness, you know? So yeah, that, that, that's so into that, that, that body chemistry control that they've developed uh, that they can yeah. hold diseases in their bodies to give you an STD that'll wreck your life. You know, uh, just, you know, there are all kinds of crazy things that they can do. And so uh, that became interesting this because they are in such tight control of themselves uh, in the books when I see things like, uh, you know, Paul and Jessica don't wake up when somebody just enters the room because they're like daredevil, you know, like, oh, you know, you know there, there's so many things that are just implies like Gurney. I, I recognize your footsteps like, oh, somebody could copy my stride. And what what we didn't get was that internal monologue. It was like, you know, I'd know the difference. And then Gurney thinks like, you know, I think he would. Yeah, and that's I, I miss the Lynchian internal monologue or the internal monologues from the books, but you can't have it all in one thing. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's just that aspect there. Now, what also made her interesting was the fact that this is something we never saw in the books or in the previous media as we saw Jessica in moments of weakness. Uh, Benny Jesserits are in such control of themselves and we got to see a side of Jessica that we never got to see before when she's alone and she has these moments of doubt and fear, even though she's been trained, you know, she has the litany against fear, you know, fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that comes before, you know, like, and she, she can let it all go. But even with all that training, it's kind of like you were saying, DT, like when you've got this, you know, we've created this perfect society, but humans are still going to human, you know, <laughs> it's going to happen. You know, Dr. Yue, uh, who became uh, a traitor. Another thing that didn't get explained, unfortunately, is the diamond tattoo, like the Mintats had the, had the lip tattoo. The diamond tattoo indicated that he had gone through strict imperial conditioning because who can kill you quicker than your doctor? So they had to go through unbelievable levels of conditioning. That's why they were trusted by all the imperial houses. So his betrayal is monumental. Uh I, I I did like Dr. Yui here again, like you had to see the, the technology of like using your senses to explore things. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, the screener copy I watched didn't have subtitles. So I, I missed a lot of what of uh, he might have been saying, Paul and some other things. Some things I remember just from knowing the book. Uh, like uh, there's that great moment where like uh, Dr. Kynes is talking to Paul. So it's like, oh, you know, you're. Your, your still suit, you wear it like a Fremen. It's like, oh, it seemed to be the way to do it. And she says, you know, she quotes a prophecy, he will know our ways as if he was born to them, uh, which is pretty nice. And uh, I, I haven't seen it in the theater, so I don't know if that's added in. But uh, if there weren't subtitles, like uh, that's a huge mistake because those lines of dialogue are crucially important. Uh, there, are, my- there are subtitles. There are. Yeah, okay. it, that is mentioned. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Ooh, man, Skarsgård kills it. <laughs> I, I read an, uh, an interview he gave uh, just last week 
about how he was approached to play it now. Uh, in the sci-fi series, that comes closest to the book. Uh, the gentleman who played him there, whose name escapes me right now. And then uh, in the 84 film, uh, he's like the Baron at his most extreme. The Baron's quite a talker. Uh, Villeneuve wanted to get away from that. He and Skarsgård got the idea of like keeping him quiet, keeping him low, keep, keeping that quiet menace. It's like you said, like that scorpion tail. When is it going to come down? And so he does so much with his eyes and subtlety. And part of the inspiration was Apocalypse Now. And that's why when he, when you first see him in his uh, steam bath, he does that whole Colonel Kurtz rubbing his hand over his bald head. That was a direct homage to Apocalypse Now. And uh, the inspiration for that, that sort of uh, contained madness and menace that he has within him. And he is just magnetically chilling anytime he's on screen even though you see he's got this encumbered body that he has to use the, the suspensor technology he's still lethal and powerful you know he picks up yui by his doggone scalp to cut his throat and they even said well, like when they were doing the makeup they didn't want him to just be corpulent uh they wanted they gave him like shoulders they they kind of built him a little bit like a gorilla he's got these shoulders and this big broad neck so you still get this sense of uh obesity but also power lurking beneath it you know so he's, he's like a doggone walrus or an elephant seal you know they're covering all this blubber but they can crush your car so i really love that aspect of him and it just added to uh to the menace of the character and uh, hats off to the makeup design too i can tell they were using silicone because of the uh uh, the internal light refraction and the the movement and the jiggle to it just flawless. I mean, it, for the first time I saw it, I was like, did he really gain like a hundred extra pounds? I mean, that is fantastic. But uh, that was um, in the sci-fi series. It was Ian McNeese, right. uh, but it, I think he's been on Doctor Who and yeah, yes. things. He's so good. A bunch of other stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, that's the way to rock a dad bod and still be powerful. Uh, yeah. I just want to throw this out uh, for a little Steve, and that is that uh, in terms of characterization, there is too much confusion between a messianic figure and a deliverer figure. A lot I of the figures that people get. Get... Okay, no. go ahead. Uh, what I've read from an article, uh, for those of us like, you know, like uh, Zendaya feels like a bit of a throwaway uh, in this movie. She doesn't really get much to do to start with. And the, she really comes more into play the last part of the book and into the next book. And then uh, Raban is really a very one-dimensional character in the book. So, you know, Batista's doing what he can do. If you want to see a great Batista, uh, watch him in, you know, Villeneuve's other film, uh, Blade Runner, uh, where he gives a stellar performance, in my opinion. But my understanding is, in the next film, uh, the point of view is going to switch to Chani. And so that's where we should be able to see if Zendaya can actually fill the... Uh, uh, fill the still suit or not. Yeah, we'll see. It's a uh, sting going to come back as fade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to get to him. Better have the cod piece. Better have the cod piece. I will kill him. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so we always have to make a distinction between a messianic figure who is fated to die for the sins of the people and a mm -hmm. deliver figure uh, like Moses, who's fated to bring the people out of oppression. That's not the same thing. So there are a lot of times where figures are misidentified from what I see because they keep saying it's a Messiah figure. Not if they don't die for the sins of the people, it's not. Mm -hmm. It's more of a Moses figure. It's a deliverer 
uh, a great exodus is coming where we get out from underneath this oppression we're under. So just want to throw that out. Steve, characters. Okay, yeah, I, I did want to talk a little bit about the characters that I wish had been a little bit more in there. Um, mm. Fade Rotha was definitely one of those that um, at least I would have liked to have seen him in the scenes with the Baron. Um, yeah, he doesn't really come into a lot into the second movie, so hopefully we'll see him. But it would have been nice to see at least see his presence foreshadowed a little bit. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Um, I would have liked to see a little bit more of the Emperor, too, but I feel like his presence is established uh, firmly enough from the other characters that we didn't necessarily need to see Carino uh, sitting on his throne, uh, necessarily. So I, now Rotha, I think, felt like was more of an omission uh, with that. Um, but we'll get into like some of the other characters. Um, Paul and Jessica, I, I'm going to get into Jessica first because I, I kind of had some issues with her. And I don't know if it's because um, I'm seeing like comparisons with Dune 84 in my head or not. But I feel like Rebecca Ferguson, for some reason, and I don't know if it's her performance or if it's the writing or what, but she seems to lack a certain amount of regal dignity that we saw in the 84 version. And that is kind of unfortunate because I feel like the Bene Gesserit side of her was better um, realized in the 84 version uh, because of that, because she was so controlled and she had that regal uh, dignity that she had. I mean, she looked like a proper lady. Um, mm -hmm. I just feel like with Rebecca Ferguson, that I don't feel like she's a highborn lady. I feel like she's in the role of one, but she's an actress trying to play that. Um, I just didn't get that sense. And I didn't get the, sen the, the sense of that authority that the Bene Gesserit should have. Now, some of it could be down to, I think that they what they wanted to do was show a more vulnerable side to Lady Jessica, which we do see quite a bit in quite a few scenes, especially when uh, Paul is facing the Gam Jabbar and she's sitting out there, you know, reciting the fear of the mind killer, you know, litany that, that we see. And, and she does that well. That's that actually was a line that um, I think was originally attributed to Paul and they yeah. gave it to her. But in her case, it works because it goes from, you know, Paul trying to basically force himself through the ritual to she is scared for her son that he might die. And she has no idea what's going on because she's standing outside the door. So I, I've kind of felt like that kind of worked. Um, I felt in other scenes it worked less well. And I, yeah, and, and again, we know we don't really get to see, you know, her being the Bene Gesserit, uh, and we don't get to see that established as well as perhaps we could have. Um, I think she did okay for the most part. Um, it's just that I just feel like that, in those intangible elements, um, I wish had been there. But, you know, it, it, for what it was, it was fine. Um, Paul, I, th I thought it was quite good. I thought Timothy Chalamet did a very, very good job uh, showing um, how Paul, you know, evolves from, you know, this young princeling, you know, into being on his own and having to take role of the Duke. I, I felt like, yeah, I'm agreeing with Jeff on that one. I felt like that def that transformation was definitely there. I thought that Chalamet definitely showed that. Um, I, I kind of felt like, yeah, this guy could be the Kwisatz Haderach. Um, I didn't have a problem with him as all uh, with it at all. Um, in terms of the the way that he's sort of written and, and that we don't see as much from them um, as perhaps we should, I, I think some of I think Mem is right. I think some of that is uh, the book, and I think some of that also is is that I feel like Herbert's story is more plot driven, uh, particularly in this particular part of the story. So mm -hmm. I think that what we're seeing is a lot more plot driven writing and less character oriented writing. Um, but you know, we have to kind of get the characters where they need to be. I mean, and you look, I mean, just 
not to interrupt real quick, but just to interject. Yeah. Um, I mean, you look at some of the characters that he cut out. I mean, the beginning of the Dune novel is narrated by Irwin. You know, yeah. I, I don't I don't know that she's even going to make an appearance. And for everybody out there who doesn't know, Princess Irwin is the emperor's eldest daughter uh, who ends up becoming Paul's wife eventually. Spoiler, right. which is funny because <laughs> I have to make this comment real quick. In the sci-fi series, she's played by a very young, attractive actress. And then her younger sister is played, played by Susan Sarandon. So, uh <laughs> Who, yeah, and in the know, movie she was played yeah. by Virginia Madsen, and it's just yeah. like, and I, honestly, I don't have a problem with cutting her off completely because yeah. she means absolutely nothing to the story. She does not have any real role at all, so I don't have a problem with cutting her out at not, all. Not until Children of Dune and Dune Messiah, right. and I think right. you can even write her out there and find a way to make it work, to be honest. Yeah, with you, so. yeah. yeah, I don't think you need her. So, yeah, so you have all that aspect. Um, yeah, so they, they made a lot of changes with that. Um, looking at uh, Duke Leto, I really like. Um, I like Oscar Isaac in general. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not going to lie. I, I think he does have authority and presence and charisma. Um, he definitely can can command men. I, you can meet, can make you believe that. Uh, he made me believe that even in like the Star Wars sequels. Uh, you know, and you and doing that, and you know, I don't really care for most of them. So the fact that we got to see him actually in a leadership role, written well, was nice to see. So um, I'm I'm always happy with that, and I agree. We've never had a bad Duke Leto, and he is an interesting character that I I would like to see more of. But unfortunately, he has to get out of the way so Paul can have his journey. You always have to have you know the death of the father so that the son can rise, um, and and that's that's definitely there as well. So I didn't have a necessarily have a problem with that. Um, I agree that um, Jason Momoa is awesome as Duncan Idaho. He is absolutely one of the best things about it. And, and it's really, a lot of it is just, you know, some of it is just Jason Momoa's, you know, whole character is just, or is just suited for those kind of rugged, you know, uh, badass fighter roles. And it just fits with that. And some of, there is some of that, but also that ending that he got, the, the way that he goes down in that last fight with a starter car is just badass in a way we never saw in the previous version of the movie. Um, and, and I love that. Absolutely love that. He he goes down fighting. He goes down a hero, you know, saving the life of, of, of his Duke, you know, absolutely going down the way that a good man should. And he was just great in that. Um, if I Scott could Colin, Yeah, go ahead. Uh, what's, what's extra great about that is in the 84 film, his death scene is uh, really brief, really truncated. You know, mm-hmm. he, he dives into a fight and he's killed almost instantly. Just, you know, basically throwing himself on the grenade, if you will. And yeah. even in the novel, as badass as Duncan Idaho is, and it's, it's, it goes through the whole series. Every time he appears in you know, whatever clone slash Gola form he is, they always talk about how awesome Duncan Idaho is. Uh, but he was basically killed off camera, if you will, in the novel. So it was really great to actually see him take down 19 Sardaukar here. So yes. I'm so glad they gave him that moment. <laughs> Yeah, they, they gave him the death that he didn't get. And every time I think of him in Dune 84, I think of him as Marty McFly's uncle in Secret of My Success. So Momoa <laughs> 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 is so much, 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 much better in that role. Uh, yeah, so as far as the Harkonnens, um, I, I will say Stellan Skarsgård was awesome. Um, I, I think in addition you know, to the Apocalypse Now references, which I agree are definitely in there, um, I kind of got the sense that they did to him kind of pull the kingpin on him where they gave him more physicality, 
you know, they, they gave him more of a physical presence. And I thought that that was necessary. Um, yeah. The previous actor uh, in the 84 film uh, was good at going over the top and, you know, ridiculous. But I felt like he just, it, it was kind of hard for me to take him seriously. I took Skull and Skarsgård's uh, version of Harkonnen very seriously. Um, he has that quiet, understated menace. That is definitely there. Um, mm -hmm. You just kind of sense that, you know, this is a guy who, who wants to wrap his hands around your throat and squeeze, um, you know, as he tries to do with Leto. Um, Very slowly. Just, yes, kill him slowly. He just, yeah, that, that the, the tail of the scorpion, as you say, that, that was definitely there. Um, he was just an, an outstanding villain. Uh, and it's hard to believe that this is the same guy who, who plays that scientist in Thor. <laughs> so, you know, you know, same actor. So it shows what kind of range that guy has. He's a very, very good actor uh, and definitely pulls it off here. Um, to Bautista, uh, yeah, I, I think Bautista is trying to be taken seriously and as an actor. I give him credit for really, really trying. I think he does try in this role. Um, unfortunately, it's just like he goes a little bit over the top. How could you give this to that Duke? It's just, oh my God. Could you tone it down a little bit? <laughs> you know, you made the point. I will yeah, say, though, that, that Raban is, is psychotic. And, yeah. and and you think that Batista should be able to pull off raging psychotic, but he yeah. doesn't. He comes off no. as. Because I'm telling you, he's winking at the camera. Yeah. There's something in yeah. him that's not yeah. fully taking seriously what he's doing, and we can feel it. So he's it's a trying too bit hard. Of a fourth wall break when he does his over the top lines because yeah, he, he, he thinks they're funny. I yep. still say, you know, Blade Runner and the little Blade Runner episode with him in it, well worth was, watching. Best work. Yeah, ever. yeah. that he was good. better there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's that he's trying too hard, and you can just sort of tie to tell. I want to be taken seriously. I'm not just Drax. <laughs> you know, I think I'm just getting that impression from him. Like he's so trying so hard to prove that he's not Drax that he ends up proving the opposite of his point. Um, it's really unfortunate, because I think he has the physicality to play Raban for sure. Um, I'm, I'm sure when we start getting to him, uh, you know, actually doing action-type things, he's going to be great, uh, because, you know, he's very, he is very good at those things. But, in, but unfortunately, he just has this tendency to overact, uh, because he doesn't quite have the nuance down that he should. And I kind of am thinking that uh, Villeneuve needs to direct him a little bit more mm -hmm. on, I was, on these kinds of scenes. I was thinking the same thing. It's like it's almost like you should have put some stuntmen in Harkonnen, Harkonnen gear in there and put a destructible wall in there and be like, look, and those scenes where you're getting upset, hit something, hit someone, yeah. do yeah. something, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah do, some, yeah, do rip, something rip, that, rip, with that sweat. energy you've got. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's definitely there. Um, so. If you're going to go Klingon, you need to go full Klingon and you need to demonstrate that you are a warrior race who would rather solve the problems by fighting, not bellowing. If you're going to bellow, there needs to be some blows after the bellow. Not I think, also, I think, you know, just to interject real quick again, I think that Batista was kind of hurt by the absence of Fade, too, because one of the things that right. puts Batista in perspective is that his brother is so... Uh, different you know yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's we, need, we need that foil yeah 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 so i think like that definitely comes across mountain versus the red viper you know that's the that's the two of them yeah 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 they're those two you know two henchmen guys that you know that work together they're they're completely the opposite of each other but they have that complete foil yeah I, I agree with that um yeah and i will also mention uh dr ua uh man this character really was wasted and i kind of feel like he needed more 
Um, they apparently there was a scene that was cut out of the movie uh, where he kind of talks about his wife um, and all that. Um, it was the same kind of scene that we saw in Dune '84. It's not in this movie. It was cut out. It should have been in the movie because it establishes his entire motivation for why he betrays the Atreides. You can't leave that out, and and that's only established like way late. No, it needed to be foreshadowed. Um, they, that that's the one thing that I think that Lynch did right um, over over uh, Villeneuve here is that you know that that really needed to be established there. That having been said, I think this actor was very good. This actor uh, did you know as as well as he could with the time he had. Um, I'm hoping that we see a director's cut with that scene back in because um, I think it needs to be there. Um, but this actor, I think, uh, played played that role perfectly well. Um, actually, I will say as an aside, I, I really got the feeling that Mr. Sinister was kind of based on this character just because of the, the diamond in the forehead. Uh, it just has that look. And, and this actor looks like he could be Mr. Sinister. Yeah. You know, he's got the beard. Huh? Yeah. That's what I thought when I saw yeah. him. I'm like, wait, yeah. wait, wait, is this a good time? I'm being snarky, so no one... Claremont, I am fairly sure, has read Herbert. Don't you, I, I, don't you I dare. Am, I am certain he's read Herbert. Don't you dare put this hashtag up on Twitter. <laughs> don't you dare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the sort of villain you've cut. Yeah, I would. I, yeah. I'm, I'm like you guys. I do, hope, I do hope we get an extended cut because I feel like yep. there's more that he would have wanted to put in the film. And so I would like to see those extended scenes giving us the extra bits of character that for all the 84 films flaws, I felt like uh, Lynch did a really fine job of making sure that each of those characters did get enough time that you did get to know them. Uh, like through for Hawaii, Peter DeVries, right. uh, Dr. UA and all them uh, who just got yeah. you know, mostly passed over here, which was too bad because they're great characters. Yeah. There's just so much good. And, and again, and it, you know, the problem is always, you know, where do you cut? It's it's yeah. hard to cut anything, and there's just so much stuff there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all those characters, uh, the the Mentats were both very very good, of course. Um, you know, yeah. since you bring them Whoa. up, uh, Stilgar is very good. Um, yeah, and as far as Chani goes, um, I will say that I appreciate that they actually focus more on her in this movie because she is an afterthought in Dune eighty four, ah, completely an afterthought. So the fact that they put her in in with the extended um, introduction. I thought that that was reasonable. Unfortunately, I do agree with DT here that uh, Zendaya is overshadowing the role that she's playing, and it's hard to see her as anything but Zendaya. That definitely showed to me. Um, I, she might be perfectly fine. Um, I, I thought that she tried. I don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with her acting per se. It's just that, unfortunately, there are just times when you see the actor, not the role. And mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to overcome that, uh, no matter how good an actor you, uh, actor you are. And in Zendaya's case, that's really kind of hard to overcome. I also mm -hmm. think that uh, Mr. Thanos, Josh Brolin, was great as yeah. Granny Alex. So yeah. Really, yeah. really good. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I will say, um, I, I don't envy him because he's competing with Patrick Stewart. <laughs> and nobody can compete with Patrick Stewart. But I think I thought that he fit that role very well. Um, I, mean, I think you, you, need, you need that battle that carrying a pug. You need that battle scar, dude. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't I agree with uh, Steve's assessment about Lady Jessica. Uh, I was thinking of the comparisons. And so she's more Caitlin Stark than she is, let's say, Lilandra. Yeah. Lilandra yeah. is who or, she should have been. But or Caitlin Stark, you know. Or Cersei, you know. You know. Right. 
Right, kind yeah. of earthing, which mm -hmm. is uh, which is ironic given Lady Stoneheart, but uh, that's another conversation. But kind of earthy, kind of I'm kind of thrust into this political stuff, and I'm doing the best I can to make it, as opposed to someone like you said that has a regal presence that I'm in charge of my section of this thing, and I'm not intimidated, and I'm not frustrated trying to save my kids. So I agree with that completely. Uh, now that's a good segue uh, because now y'all have made me want to get an X Men film out of this director. <laughs> that's a good that's a good segue into let's talk about the construction of the film itself and uh i'm gonna go to bracy next because i definitely want to hear what he has to say because the cinematography mm. just 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 took my breath away i'm like wait they can still make films like this now and that's what i was alluding to in the intro about how have we gotten so far away from epic film that when we see something that's even a little bit epic we're we're just freaking out because the bar has dropped so low. So I'll hear your thoughts on that shortly, but the cinematography on this film, and Bracey, I want you to talk about camera angles and speed, mm. specifically, because I know you've got a handle on that much better than I do. But this film gave me epicness and intimacy at the same time. And that is not easy. This film gave me a interplanetary conflict full of political intrigue and yet, it was visceral and in the moment. Uh, and that, you know, has to do with writing as well as camera frames. But I'm saying, I just felt like I was on an adventure. I felt like this should be a ride at like Universal Studios or Disney or whoever owns the rights. Like I want to go to the world of Dune because it's just so awesome. And watching the worms in particular, you know, because I'm like, Y'all brothers to the Sarlacc pit, right? Y'all like the Sarlacc cousins, right? That we don't talk about, right? So but as I watched, as I watched, you know, the worms, I wasn't taken out of the film because of the CGI. It just felt seamless. And I, you know, like I said, just the just the the framing, just everything about it. Uh, I just loved the look of this film from start to finish. And that was the thing that kept me engaged, honestly, more than anything else was just how epic and, and large this world was, you know, intimate when it needed to be. But you got the sense of, you know, not just the emperor, but the fact that it was a much larger game going on than what we were seeing. That is part writing, but that's also when you know how to shoot your scenes, that kind of thing. And let me throw in, I think this is what Prometheus should have been. I think I should have been more convinced I was on an alien planet because I wasn't when I watched Prometheus. And I think I should have been more aware of a larger of the hand of Wayland Utani and a whole bunch of different stuff and I wasn't so so but I was here and so just such a beautifully shot film and I had to watch it twice uh because I had to watch it one time for my wows and the second time for my information you know what I mean like you know mm -hmm. like when you're in the theater and everybody's clapping and cheering you don't get it the first time you're just like wow okay but the second time you're like oh, okay that was the line but I'm engaged I'm engaged visually all the way through. So I'm going to throw it out to Bracey. Talk about camera speed and angles and any type of technological perspective you can, you can give us on why it looks so good. Yeah, I've actually, uh, I've watched it three times now. Uh, uh, once uh, when we got it, when we got the screener in, uh, I wanted to watch it each time before I thought we were going to podcast uh, because I wanted it fresh in my mind to discuss it and uh, just to soak everything in. The visuals are bloody stunning. I mean, this is one of the most beautifully uh, photographed film 
I've ever seen. And uh, I, I know a lot of people are saying the same thing. It's like, you know, the visuals are amazing and they, they really are in the, the scope of it. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's the cool thing because if we can't pull the camera back to see the larger world, uh, the director gives us a lot of scope for the worlds that we are on. Uh, I love the incredible vistas of Caledon uh, with the water and the mountains and just the pure, perfect, natural beauty of it all. And then, you know, we get the shots of the desert, uh, but he still manages to inject life into that into the desert because the sand's always moving in the winds. And I love the little the little trick of like there's there's these hints of fire and that's the spice the spice catches light and so the spice is like flickers of fire and it, when it's being mined at night by the harkonnens it looks like they're they're uh oil drilling uh you know and the, you know sometimes the plumes of fire when you drill for oil uh, i love that allegory to it and so it, it was just such a cool way to show it because nobody thought of doing anything like that before you know they'd have to go like paul david like I smell spice, you know, but now we actually get to see the spice. Uh, it's really important, like you said, the being able to bounce between these these visuals, and they really set the tone. Then we move to things like Giddy Prime, uh, the planet of the Harkonnens, and it is an industrial nightmare. There are no more natural resources. We see it is a parking lot of a planet. It's just asphalt and buildings everywhere, and they they bathe in oil and they, they shower in steam and it's probably toxic nuclear rate steam for radio, you know, a, a, a radioactive uh, plant or something. And so it just, and, and they did build sets for some of these things, some like some real sets. So you, you really get this sense of physicality. Our brains and our eyes can recognize this even amidst the CGI, but the CGI itself is so doggone good. It really, really, this is going to hold up for a long time, I think. And these these expansive vistas, and I love them because they do give you that sense of scale. They give you that sense of epicness, uh, this sense of uh, mythological grandeur that's going on because this is a very grand scale. But then he is also smart enough to focus in on the little things. I, I like bringing it in on the little desert mouse, and that keeps popping up because that will become very important in the second film. And, you know, we Moadib. Started, yeah, Moadib. It, like we focus on because like I love how very cleverly he didn't show the shadow on the small moon yet, just the, the shadow of the hand on the large moon. He's saving that for movie two. Uh, but, you know, that comes in and how that's even in part of like his little holos and the intimate scenes like, you know, he'll he'll zoom in really tight on these faces for very important scenes like that. So you get that uh, the framing. Uh, I love every time they had a. Uh, 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 Gaius Helen Moam on, on like just didn't matter what her face her face is obscured by all kinds of veils but like you always get her he's he's tight enough on her that you get her no matter what's obscuring her face and like there's so mm-hmm. much going on with that actress I can't wait to see more from her and uh, one of the most one of the coolest scenes for me is right after the whole test of the Gom Jabbar and the Bene Gesserit are flying off and every time we've seen Jessica and Paul before, it's always these medium shots where we're framed, where we can see the characters. Are they in these intimate spaces together? And this is a uh, this is a, a great bit of visual language, and uh, it's it's expertly done here. And I've I've seen it done before, but I really appreciate how it's done here. Paul has just learned something terrible about himself, 
is the Kwisatz Haderach or might be the Kwisatz Haderach. He has learned that there is, you know, there's this other side to his heritage that he wasn't really aware of. And so as, as she's bidding goodbye to the Reverend Mother, she turns around. There's Paul way down the gangway, and they're separated by murky fog at night. And that shows the distance that has come between them, where they've been like this all the time. Now it's not just the fact that there is an emotional distance between them. Now there's a bit of a distance of trust, although you'll never lose all your trust because this is your mom. Uh, but I love how he framed that physically in the frame. Like we are separated. There's this gulf and there is a darkness between us and you're not everything I thought you were. And there's that moment when you, when you grow and you learn that your parents do have feet of clay. You know, you grow up thinking your dad's Superman or your mom's the queen of all things. And then you find out that that's not the case. And that's another part of the allegory of growing up. And it's, it's so good. He is so good at, at planting these visual cues. I love when they leave Caladan. They leave Caladan on a sunset. The sun is going down. This is our last day on Caladan. Great things are changing. And then we are in the middle of this bright, sunny, dusty, windy place with no no water in sight, no blue anywhere, no green anywhere. Uh, again, just the visual language and the visual storytelling that's going on here is just beyond compare. And I knew, I knew he was going to kill it because of how good he was with Blade Runner 2049. Uh, I, I was so impressed with his visuals in this, going from the beautiful recreation of the Ridley uh, the Ridley Scott cityscapes and all the over hyper neon and that whole kind of like you know like this is the uh, center of Tokyo kind of thing that they they homaged in those films and he took it out you know to the desert to find Harrison Ford and the whole tonal and uh, and color shift that happens from that and we get that more of that here and I love how each world is so distinct you really do feel like you're on different worlds. And they even gave us a, a nice little uh, glimpse of Seleucid Secondus, where the Sardaukar are raised and trained on the prison planet. This is where the emperor's uh, uh, soldiery comes from. This is the prison. This is like Escape from New York. They send you to a planet full of criminals, and whoever lives gets to be in the army. <laughs> and so that was pretty see, grim, too. Yeah, and like, yeah, so you see this crazy, harsh world where it's like it's all just like stone and rain, and everything's flat and gray, and it all looks dangerous. And just the 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 care and the thought that he put into this, you know, my hat is so off to everything he's done visually with this. No, yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And like I said, it. Oh, I forgot one. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Sorry, one last tiny little thing: uh, the space travel. This dude totally likes 2001. When you see the little yeah. ship coming out of the uh, out of the guild highliners, yeah. that is such a 2001 shot. I loved it. Loved it. Yeah, loved it, loved true, it. true. Now, Steve said it earlier. I love the ornithopters, the dragonfly yeah. helicopters. Holy cow. I'm like, I want one of those now. Anyway, go ahead, Steve. Uh, thoughts about the visual, the look of this film. Yeah, I think uh, Jeff covered it pretty well. Um, I, I completely agree about the 2001 influence. In fact, I, I really was going to point that out myself if he didn't, um, because that's definitely there in that one shot, um, you know, where you sort of see the planet and you sort of see um, the ship up there. 
you know, and the moon and whatnot, the way that those th the, those elements are aligned, uh, they mm -hmm. look straight out of a uh, scene from 2001. Uh, they, they definitely did like to do that. I'm pretty sure that um, Villeneuve is very well read in science fiction, and, and I'm sure that he's seen a lot of these kinds of films, and, you know, he likes to throw his little homages to these kinds of artistic science fiction films. Uh, I think that it was definitely there here. Um, yeah, definitely the technology looked really good. Um, I, I thought that they did that. I think they did a great job on the sandworms because you can make those things look absolutely ridiculous if you don't know what you're doing. Um, I felt like that those were very, very well handled. Um, they looked like a real threat. Uh, they didn't look like there was too much CGI involved in anything that we saw with that. Uh, so those were really good. One Another area where I really was impressed with, uh, or I wouldn't say impressed, but um, I felt like it was a dramatic improvement was the shields. The shields in Dune 1984 look stupid. I hate to say it, but it's true. They look absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I knew that it was just one of those things where the failures of the technology was apparent in that film. In this movie, that's much, much better. And, and yeah, there might be issues with the way that the fight choreography was handled, etc. Um, that, that, that sounds reasonable to me. But the fact that you can see that, okay, it's blue, a light blue or surrounding you, so you can see that the shield works, and then it shifts red when something penetrates it. I thought that that was a really good way of showing that. Yeah. That was visually. That, that worked for me, that, at least that bit of it. Um, so, yeah, the shields are, are vastly, vastly better. Um, they definitely did a really good job with a lot of the, the, the ship stuff. Um, they did a good job of showing Arrakis. Um, just and all the different planets. All the different planets look like different planets. Um, yeah, Gietti Prime, um, you know, definitely has that asphalt look. I mean, it looks like it's been overdeveloped, um, which is again, you know, part of the whole uh, narrative about you know imperialism because they're taking all the resources from Arrakis. They're trying to bring it all to Gietti Prime because they burn out their planet. Absolutely, looks really, really good. Uh, Caladan looks, you know, like this, like a paradise planet. And, and I will, other thing that I will note about Caladan that I had noticed um, on the third viewing that I did, um, and the fact that I watched this three times ought to tell you how much I enjoyed this film, mm -hmm. um, uh, is the uh, connections visually to the Greeks. Because um, Atreides, the name, uh, comes from the House of Atreus, which was one of the trousers from the Trojan War. Um, and that was definitely chosen deliberately by Herbert. There are a lot of, there are a lot of references to bulls to bullfighting and to cows. Um, that was definitely, bulls are definitely something that shrops up in Greek mythology, the Minotaur, uh, the Bull of Crete, Europa, um, all these kinds of different things. And so um, and so you see, you know, references to the grandfather being a bullfighter. The origami in that one scene uh, of a bullfighter that um, that is in there, that's a direct reference um, as well. All the uh, references to cow heads and bull heads uh, being planted all throughout the the, the house in Caladan, uh, you see all of that. I just love those little touches um, that make the entire location look lived in, and at the same time hit the thematic points. Um, you know, the the choice of the desert mouse out in the desert. Um, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's definitely a reference to Muad'Dib uh, because that the name literally is desert mouse. Um, so the fact that that was foreshadowed. You know, just with the with the mouse on the desert, um, with the with the with the bit of sweat coming down, really, really well done. Um, and even that didn't look overly CGI, even though it probably was. Um, you know, so all of these different elements um, in the movie came together very well cohesively. Um, each scene is well shot. Uh, 
you know, the, the storytelling and the continuity are all consistent. Um, yeah, I, I really love the way that the, the movie looked. It was a little subdued in terms of color, um, but, you know, not unreasonably so. Um, it fit the tone of the movie. Um, I don't have any real complaints in terms of that. I thought that visually Villeneuve uh, did an outstanding job, as he tends to do. I was going to say, uh, I don't think it would have been received the same if it was a brighter palette. I think the subdued mm -hmm. nature of yep. what we saw was kind of perfect for the story it was telling. Yep. Because there's so much uh, subtlety and nuance in every scene and part of the story. So I thought this is one of the few times that that uh, subdued palette actually matched the tone of the film. Because it's, if it's bright, everybody would have said it was trying to be Star Wars. So, yeah. Okay, Nims, thoughts on the look of the film? And then we're going to wrap up. Yeah, I think everybody hit on a lot of really good things. So what I'm going to hit on is, uh, it should come as no surprise to anybody, when I watch any movie that has conflict or battle or warfare in it, uh, I pay attention to those really. I, I enjoy those scenes. I pay attention to them. Um, I also love, you know, having been a computer programmer in a past life, I love computer graphics. However, too many times uh, CGI is used for CGI's sake. And I think that this mm -hmm. movie is a great example of less is often more when it comes to CGI. Okay. And if you, if the scene calls for a Ford and it needs to look like a Ford, if you put a Ferrari in it, it looks ridiculous. You know? <laughs> so what do I mean by that? Um, the shields are a perfect example. You, you go back to the 84 shields, which were all hand drawn, hand animated, by the way, think about how long that took. Um, the effect here that they did is not real difficult. I could probably do it on my home PC. However, it's incredibly effective. It works and it looks, for lack of a better term, realistic. Same mm -hmm. thing later on when you have the large capital ships uh, with their uh, chemical lasers or zero point lasers or whatever they are. And then the Sardar car have the, the version of a, of a chemical laser that burns through the, the stone as they're trying to cut open the door. Those look like things that we have just yeah. advanced, you know, a thousand years or a couple hundred years or something. And so I really appreciated that here they really dialed back on the CGI and said, let's give them a world that looks plausible instead of a world that looks uh, fantastic, you know, fantastic and then unbelievable. No, that's and, really well said. Plausible over unbelievable. It's really well yeah, said. Didn't, yeah. didn't you like how the lasers caught the particulates in the air? Like oh, the real beam it was you? fantastic. When Duncan Hido was trying to get away and that ship was chasing him with the laser and it's burning, yeah. it was just, it was absolutely riveting. And, and this was new. This was a, I will say, I love Dune. I've watched all the Dune stuff that's ever come out. And I always and I can watch it over and over again, and I always enjoy it, even if the the CGI or whatever is bad. Like the sci-fi series is not real good. Neither is Dune, uh, eighty four. It's not great, but I enjoy it because I enjoy the story. I enjoy everything about it. This was the first time watching conflict in Dune. Usually, when I watch conflict in Dune, I'm kind of like, oh, how interesting, you know? I'm very academic about it or whatever. This is the first time where I'm watching. I was on the edge of my seat, going, "Holy bleep!" You know, I was like. <laughs> You know, when they drop the, the you know, and some of the stuff, I don't remember if it was in the book or not. I remember they talk about it in gen generalities, but the visuals, for instance, uh, whoever came up with the CGI effect where the atomics come down, hit the shield, 
you know, so these are large scale weapons burrow through the shield and then blow up. And you see the explosion come and envelope. And for a moment, it's in the square form of a shield. It's it's the mm-hmm. shield is containing it before it blows the shield apart. Just an absolutely incredible effect. Is it difficult to do? No, it is not. It's really not. You could probably do it if you know what you're doing on your PC. But the, to think about that, to visualize it, to before you start doing the visuals, to actually think about what does this, what is, what am I trying to accomplish here? What is the real world weapon that I'm trying to replicate? And then doing it is forethought like, and planning in a movie that we want from our writers in books and comic books and everything else, because they're coming up with the concept first and then putting that out on the paper or on the screen or whatever else. And you can tell the military guy, you had to love the Sergeant car repelling, didn't you? Oh yeah, absolutely. It was just repelling. (laughs) Yeah. It was just outstanding. I mean, so those little things, they, they, there's not a lot to them. But you start getting a lot of those little things and they become a big thing and they immerse you in this world. And I, and I said it before that the biggest thing that Villeneuve does that I love about this movie is he gave you the whole world, everything about it and brought it to life and said, here is another character for you. Enjoy. And, and everything we're talking about is basically Villeneuve's love for this material, giving us this character of the world and I loved it. It was absolutely beautiful. I mean, even the, the just the ships taking on and off. I mean, these are things that people do fakes of on YouTube all the time. But it was done to a professional level and looked so wonderful that it felt real. And it's not, you know. So it's like, kudos, bravo. Well, I agree with what you're saying about again the. Uh, it's very similar to. At the highest level, if such a thing could be, it would look like that. Mm. And nothing happens in the film to take us out of that, mm. which I think is absolutely incredible. And uh, the little touches, that's the point I agree with the most. The little touches, the little touches add up to a big impact because it makes you uh, uh, drawn into and intrigued by the physics of the story world which is something I always love. I always love the visceral nature and, and I write like that, but it makes you wonder about that technology. And like you said, translated into what we could use it for in our world. And there's just, just not a downside to just, loving the details of your story world. So just, you can, you know, rush through them and gloss over them, or you can do it like this and take a deep dive and make just the subtleties and the nuances of your story world for some reason to the brain makes a fantasy world more real. Go ahead what, and add something. What, one of the coolest moments in here, and it's another one of those little touches is, um, you know, anybody that knows about cutting lasers and the way they work, you know, it's not Star Wars. They're not shooting out beams, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there is one scene where the starter car have the laser and they're cutting through the door and it's going through the door and they don't know that Paul and Kynes and his mother are on the other side, but this laser is cutting around in the room and they're trying to avoid getting cut by this laser that, you know, is cutting through the wall. And it's just a little touch, you know, but adding that little bit of realism to how real lasers work in our world, hype the stakes and it just looked fantastic and cool as well, you know? And that's, 
as far as I can remember, it's not in the books. I've never seen it in any of the movies. They are, they are in the books. They're called Last Guns in the book. I don't, I don't remember that scene, I guess, in the book. So. Not not that scene, but yeah, they had directed energy weapons. They didn't call Yeah, them yeah, weapons. yeah. And that's I, what they did. They would be projected beams that would just cut through everything until something had enough mass to stop the beam. And yeah, I was I remember, so happy to see that in the film. Yeah, I remember the technology, but it's like I've never seen that scene. And so bringing that to life here just showed it, it was just really cool and made the world a little bit more dangerous. And you're like, okay, now I understand. It's like if you're fighting one-on-one, you could never carry this big old huge laser weapon. And that's why we don't have Star Wars fights, you know? And suddenly the world of Dune just makes a little bit more sense, you know? But you realize that you can have those last guns and they are dangerous, you know, for what they're used for, so. All right, folks, we're going to call it there. Obviously more we could talk about because the story world is layered and the movie is rich. Looking forward to the next film. Uh, looking forward to what details we can see. And then we're obviously going to talk about the ones that we miss. But again, the story world is so vast and entertaining. But what I want to end on is this note that it takes <clears throat> the full efforts of everybody involved, writing, casting, directing, lighting, so many different departments that go into a film. And this is why when you reach an artisan level, when you have mastered your craft, this is what transforms an average film into an extraordinary film. And uh, just on the craftsmanship alone, uh, I love what I saw. So I can't wait for the next installment. So I want to thank my co-host. Thank you so much, Nims. No problem. Thank you. Great discussion. Absolutely love being back. Thank you so much, Bracey. It was my pleasure. And I will say, because I don't think we actually addressed it, even though you put it out there, that this is an example of a really good film and we've clearly been hungry for it. But to address your point, uh, I think because we have been so hungry for it, I know that I've caught myself liking films more than I would have that were above the bar that's been set these days because we're starving for better entertainment. Absolutely. We are, especially when we are so involved with the story world from the source material. And especially when, you envision it when you're a writer or a director like you are. You envision this should look like this. And when it doesn't, you can't help but be thrown out of it or disappointed. So, and I didn't feel that disappointment with this film. Thank you so much, Steve. Doctor. Yeah, um, to, to piggyback on what you guys have said, I think a big difference is that Denis Villeneuve is a fan of Dune. He clearly loves these books. Um, he clearly wanted to bring uh, the, the story that he loved to life. And I think that's the difference. Um, I think that, you know, he has passion for all this material. And that passion is what drove this movie, you know, made him go through all the long hours to make it. And in the end, I think that's why we respond to it, because we can sense the passion that this director and this writer has for the movie that he made. And even if, um, you know, the current environment, um, as far as the landscape of movies and whatnot, um, has maybe has contributed to why we liked it more, I think we would still like it anyway, because that passion is there, because that respect for the source material is there, and because the quality is there, and he put a lot of effort into making it the best movie that he knew how to make. Uh, and I think that shines through. Um, so I guess until I'll leave it with this, um, to quote Christopher Walken uh, in, Weapon, in Weapon of Choice, uh, you know, walk without rhythm and you won't attract the worm.
<laughs> Respect and love from the source material because that which is from the heart reaches the heart. Now y'all have made me want an X-Men film out of this and an alien film. Oh, now, now I can't get it out of my head now. Because now it I know we can have what we want. Somebody out there that gets what we want if they love it. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Maybe I'll start a, a, a Twitter thread or maybe I'll, maybe I'll start a petition. I don't know. But now I got to see his X-Men and now I got to see uh, what an alien film should look like because my scene is Ripley is waking up out of the chamber and then last two movies was just a dream. But anyway, until next time, thank you so much for tuning in to Sophie Spoilers. Uh, we're all feeling good uh, being back, being back together, dissecting our favorite films. So we're going to continue to do what we love to do. Thanks so much for watching us live. Thanks for those that are watching on the replay. Uh, don't forget to check out the other information, other content, other stuff we have on Comic Crusaders. And we'll see you the next time on the next episode of Sloppy Spoilers. 